0: Here we go, 2 Kings 5, 1-19. through 19. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send the letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you, Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, "Go and wash in the Jordan 7 times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away saying, "Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel?" Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant, two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, uh, tonight I ask that you would bless this, um, this reading and this teaching and this preaching of your word. Father, help me to be... Uh, to be faithful in the things that you have given us, and that you will uh, be kind to help us to understand uh, this word from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me get a second to get my sermon loaded here. Because Here we go. All right. Hey, okay, so we are, we're looking at, um, we're spending this semester looking at relationships. Um, why? Why? Uh, I think the the first reason, the main reason, is that we um, is that we uh, we see sanctification so clearly play out in our relationships that, that it's oftentimes other people uh, and, and living in contact with other people that are the things that, that are the, the, the agent for helping us grow and change. And a lot of times, that's the the place where our growth and grace is the most obvious. The the next reason is that uh, relationships are complicated. And you've gotten a lot of bad advice. Um, The next reason is that the Bible equips us for every good work, including our relationships. And so because of that, we are spending this semester looking at this idea. And and we've called it Created for Love. um, That that's what we were made for. And the thing I want you to remember tonight is that you're safe here. Um, There is... Nothing that you've done in past relationships, there's nothing that has been done to you uh, that disqualifies you from the love of God, um, that disqualifies you from uh, grace and restoration. Um, and there are no dumb questions. Uh, there's nothing that you can ask that um, it, that's, a, that's a bad question. And so it actually, once we kind of get, I've said this every week, but I'll keep saying it. Once we kind of get, uh, probably after next week, when we get into the more topical um, ideas of relationships, um, our small group time, we're going to do uh, kind of an open Q&A, like I'll have a way for you to text anonymous questions, and we'll try to take those and address those. So tonight we come to this passage in 2 Kings, and and the, the idea, the theme for tonight is that you were created for restoration. We started off two weeks ago looking at uh, being created for reflection, and who it is that we're created to reflect. Last week we looked at being created for covenant, that... Um, that that's the way that God relates to us. is primarily through the covenants and through his covenant. And so tonight we're looking at being made for restoration. And I haven't quite decided uh, if we're going to jump into the topical part next week or if we're going to look at one more created for, and that's going to be, if we do, it'll be uh, for glorification. Um, that, that, that's, that, that you're being made into something um, and that you know, relationships are a big catalyst for that. So tonight we're looking at this passage, though, um, in, in 2 Kings 5, about being created for restoration. And, uh, and so this sermon actually, uh, sometime in 2014, um, I went to the Mid-South Men's Rally at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And a small town preacher by the name of Tim Keller, you may have heard me quote before, uh, preached on this passage. And so a lot, of what, a lot of what is here is just kind of taking the things that he said about this passage and applying them to you and specifically to relationships. So, um, as always, I'm very thankful for, um, for Dr. Reverend, Mr. Keller. I don't know. I can't call him. We're not tight like that. I can't call him Tim. Um, I'm thankful to Timmy K. Right. Um, anyway, so, so I think what this passage shows us is it shows us the need for restoration. It shows us the path to restoration and it shows us the life of restoration. So those, are, if you like to take notes or whatever, that's kind of how we're going to do it. So the first thing, and the other thing that's beautiful about, about preaching like narrative or like a story in the Bible is that like, I don't have to be creative and like come up with a bunch of like movie illustrations and stuff. I can just let the story speak for itself. So we get to jump right in. The need for restoration. So we meet this man Naaman in 2 Kings 5, and we're immediately told some things about him. Uh, we are told that he is the commander of the army of Syria. And this would have been, um, he would have been like the number two man in Syria. like, like He was like, it was like the king of Syria and then Naaman. So Naaman's a big deal. And he had, he had a brilliant military mind um, because it says that the Lord used him to, to win battles. Uh, he was very wealthy. Um, when he goes to meet with Uh, The king of Israel, later Elisha, talks about how much he brings with him. He brings 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. I don't know what that means, but it's a lot, and clearly it's meant to be be impressive. Um, He has a lot of stuff. He has a lot of influence. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of fame. But he was a leper. It's also one of the first things that... Uh, Second Kings tells us he was a leper, and, and, and what we know about leprosy is that it was an incurable disease at the time. It may still be an incurable disease. I don't I don't know I don't know what's up with leprosy these days. There is still a leper colony in Louisiana. I know that, um, but I don't know I don't know what's going on with leprosy these days. But um, at the time, it was an incurable disease, and, and, and it was a horrible disease. It made your, made your skin turn uh, turn white, and you would uh, you would um, like lose feeling in your extremities. And so you would like bump into things and you wouldn't feel like your, your foot get cut off. Or like you'd sit down by the fire and you're just like, you would stick your hand in the fire and you wouldn't know your hand was burning until you started to smell burnt flesh, right? Leprosy was a debilitating disease and it was also, it was also pretty gross. Um, it led to pain and disfigurement. And also, also what we know from um, looking at the rest of the Old Testament is that in Jewish culture, it would have made you unclean. You would have been completely cut off from your family, from your friends, and you would even have to walk around like yelling at people, hey, I'm unclean, you know, stay away from me, that kind of thing. And so Naaman had, Naaman had every outward trapping of the good life. Like you would look at Naaman and think, I want that guy's life. He had professional success. He, had, he was politically connected. He was wealthy beyond imagination. That he was like the guy in Syria. But his body was literally physically falling apart. And and he knew that if something didn't fix him, something that he had no power to fix in and of himself, he knew that if something didn't fix him, he was going to die. And probably a shameful, uh, painful, lonely death. And so either the most powerful man in the world or the second most powerful man in the world was completely powerless to fix the situation. There was nothing he could do. And so before we go further, I want to ask if, if you can relate to that at all, if you understand what that feels like. You know, maybe, um, you know, maybe you're not like Naaman and have all this money and influence and, and, and other stuff, but I mean, realistically, you know, kind of based on demographics and things like that, like you're in college, so you've got, some, you've got some things going for you. Um, but so many times, it's in our relationships that we really start to feel this need for restoration that Naaman is starting to feel. Right? Naaman is feeling lonely and cut off and helpless. And so maybe you feel this in your relationship with God. Right? Maybe, maybe you can't shake this feeling that somehow... No matter what you do, you and God are just kind of off. You're not vibing that day or whatever. Um, that no matter what you do, you cannot fix it. You can't make it right. You you try to be good. You try to be good enough. You try to do the right thing enough times, and you hope that maybe at the end of the day, uh, you've done enough good to weigh out the bad. You you try really hard to sit down and read the Bible. Maybe you even this year started a uh, read through the Bible in a year thing and you made it to Leviticus and you quit. Maybe you think that you could somehow be good enough or look holy enough. You know, the, the, the Bible studies you go to, the actual Christian college you all go to. You're at RUF, you may go to other campus ministries, you may be active in church. You have more resources at your fingertips. For a relationship with God than at any other point in your life and you still can't shake the feeling that you're not doing enough. You've got all this wealth and influence and status and it's just not enough. Or maybe maybe you feel this in your relationships with other people. You feel it with your friends, right? You've You've got Instagram stories and Snapchat streaks that make you feel like you should be deeply connected to somebody. I mean, you've made... Like a, like a duck face peace sign for like 143 days in a row now, right? Like what's more connected than that? You should have solid relationships with other people, but when you're around them in the flesh, you can't help this feeling that you don't measure up, that you're not enough, that you're not good enough, and, and, and you look and you see competition, you see rivalry, you see jealousy, and so you either you do one or two things: you either affirm that competition and you lean into it, and you fight to try to make yourself better than the people around you, or you just resign yourself into to it and you give up because no matter what, even if you win, you are just going to feel like you don't measure up. In your dating relationships, you have the absolute best boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, they're just the best. They're wonderful. And you're in a healthy dating relationship. It's wonderful, and it's great. But deep down inside, you're starting to put together this reality that while the person you're dating may actually be great, they can't meet the inadequacy that gnaws away at your own heart. And maybe you know how to deal with that in a healthy way, but maybe you don't. And so you start to do stuff emotionally, spiritually, physically, that you think should fix the problem, but it actually just makes the problem worse, right? One of the things that we see in the story of the woman who touches Jesus' robe uh, in the Gospel of Mark says that she spent all of her money trying to get better and that actually the doctors just made it worse. And that's what, that's what we do. We, we, we try to run to these things, to run to these people and cling to them more harshly more tightly more whatever the word is there it just makes the problem worse maybe maybe we see that in our relationship with creation right i I love technology um verizon sent me a text message the other day that i can upgrade my phone to an iphone 13 for like i don't know it was a bunch of money off and i was like oh i should totally do that i don't need to but it would be an iPhone 13, which is three more than the 10 I have. So like, of course, why, right, why wouldn't we want that? But um, I've, I've, sent a lot, I've sent a lot of you quotes from this book that I'm reading right now called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. You should all get it and read it because it's amazing. But in the book, he says this. He says, technology expands to fill up the time that it saves us. So if you think about it, all the cool stuff that your phone does, and your phone does a lot of cool stuff, It saves you a ton of time, like so much time. But what happens with all the time that it saves you? You just spend more time on it. So it's like all the time that you didn't have to spend, like going to the library and looking at the card catalog and finding the right copy of the book and like writing down the quote and all the stuff you have to do to cite it properly. You just get on your phone, look it up, and then you go back to playing Angry Birds. Like, it's just right back there, right out. Do y'all still play Angry Birds? Is that still a thing? Some people do. Trey does. does. Okay, cool. (laughs) Whatever whatever game you're playing, whatever it is you're doing on it, Wordle. I'm big into Wordle right now. Um, But instead of enjoying creation, enjoying the world that God has given you the way he intended it, you still feel insanely busy. Like, you never have any time. And your rest never ends up feeling actually restful. Or you end up resentful because of the way someone else can enjoy creation because you know because you're scrolling through their Instagram and they're on top of a mountain enjoying themselves. They can enjoy creation and rest and it just becomes this vicious cycle. And here's just a few examples of the way that we do this, of the way that we feel uh, feel this inadequacy and what that is is nagging at us. That, that we need something more than that. We need something more than what we have at our fingertips. And I want to suggest to you that a lot of the, the day-to-day stuff that you struggle with, I think namely, um, namely anxiety and depression, and I, I don't want to discount true like, chemical imbalances that we have in our brains. Probably to, I don't want to discount that. That's real. But a lot of times these things can can lead to relational struggle and the damage that it comes from this stuff. You've been told your entire life that you possess the goods necessary to thrive in life. But if you look around, you can't help but feel like you have constantly fallen short. Maybe it's stuff that you've done. Maybe it's stuff that's been done to you. And, And in reality, it's a combination of both that come from the fact that we live in a fallen and sinful world. But here's the thing, that nagging feeling that, that continually eats away at you, that makes you feel like you are not enough, that anxiety that it's eventually all gonna fall apart, that, that feeling is actually your need for restoration screaming at you. It is, it is the need that you have deep in your heart that says, I need something outside of me to make this right that is yelling and screaming at you and it's never going to go away until you come to terms with it. So you're eventually going to find something else to blame uh, everything on. Um, you'll find natural or biological limitations. You will find societal injustices. You will find personal weaknesses. You'll find all those things to continue to blame for that feeling. And all those things are real, by the way. Like That's not, that's not to diminish any of those. You'll find something else that's going to lead to that feeling. And what you will do is you will find something else to try to fix it. You will try to have more sex. You will try to look more righteous. You will watch more Netflix. You will do more anything. You will find a way to try to silence that voice and nothing is ever going to be enough to fix it. Until, like Naaman did in our story here, you embrace the feeling of inadequacy. That feeling that everything in your life you've been taught to run away from, you actually need to embrace it. You need to feel it. So that's the need for restoration. But here we come to the path to it. And so maybe you agree. Maybe you're listening. Like, you know what? Okay, I can, at least, I can at least logically see where you're going with this. And I agree with you. What do I do? How do we handle this? Um, and I think that the biggest thing that we have to do is we have to get rid of the illusion of self-sufficiency. We have to get rid of this idea that we can fix it, that we are enough. So we just laid this out a little bit, but, um, but look, look again at what Naaman has to do. He goes to Israel, and even though um, his, his slave girl at home tells him, Hey, if you just go, he goes to Samaria, not Israel. That's what the Bible says. Um, He goes to Samaria. He says, if you just go and see the prophet who's in Samaria, you you will be healed. So what does he do? He goes to see the king of Israel. And he shows up with this massive gift and says to the king, here's a letter from the king of Syria, heal me. So what does that tell us about what Naaman is thinking? It tells us that, Naaman thinks he can show up and impress the king of Israel. That he can show up and, and look wealthy enough and powerful enough, he can show up as a, as, a, as a powerful man speaking to another powerful man, right? It's one of those, like, backroom, like, mafia deals, right? Where, like, there's the unspoken code. And they, what, I don't I'd think about those things. Um, but, but he thinks he's going to show up and impress the king of Israel with his wealth and with his power, and he's going to show up and he's, he's going to earn his healing. He's going to show up to this king, and in his wealth and status, he's going to prove that he is sufficient to be healed. But look at what the king of Israel says. In verse 7, it says this. It says, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Basically, the king is like, Man, what? Like, you are coming to me, another man, to ask me to heal your leprosy? He's like, get out. Like nobody, like, nobody can do that. It's not possible. And it was such an offensive request, the king of Israel was like, I just think Syria's trying to start a war with us. Because, like, I'm going to send their guy back, not heal of his leprosy, and the king of Syria is going to be angry and come and kill us again, take all our people away. I, I love I love that the King of Israel is like, am I, am I God? Like how many things do you turn to, to fix your problems that are like, heck yeah, I'm God. Right? I like, I like, give me your time. Give me your, uh, give me your longings. Right? A few years ago uh, in an interview, and this was, this was before Netflix got as big as it is now, a few years ago in an interview, uh, the, the CEO of Netflix said that they're Their chief rival is not Amazon or Hulu or or, or whatever other, you know, Disney Plus or whatever other streaming service. He said their chief rival is sleep. And that's funny, but it should also scare you because Netflix is demanding from you time otherwise spent resting. And it's one of those things that we turn to to numb, to say that we are sufficient to be healed, and, and, and because we don't want to think about not being we're just going to binge whatever whatever thing we're watching now. But that's what, it's the way the world works. But it also highlights the difference in the God of Syria, and by extension, all the gods of the nations in these times, and the God of Israel. the, um, the In the pagan nations, the king was the god. Or the king was subservient, or the gods were subservient to the kings. That That, that the gods were just kind of a projection of the culture that they lived in. And the king was kind of the person who represented that. But, but in Israel, in Israel, the king knew, even the bad kings knew that if they were bad kings, they were going to be judged by the God of Israel, that they sat under him. But, but what Elisha does is so funny to me because, because he hears that, he hears that the, um, here's that Naaman, uh, here's the king has, has torn his clothes, and Elisha basically sends the king, he's like, just send her to my house, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. And so Naaman shows up with all these gifts, like I imagine Naaman walking up, he's got these money bags, and um, you know, he's got his ten changes of clothing, and uh, he's got, I'm sure, like a, big, like a big entourage, all this kind of stuff. And he shows up to Elisha's house, and he knocks on the door, and Elisha doesn't even answer the door. <laughs> Elisha sends his servant, he'll be like, just go wash in the Jordan and you'll be fine. And Naaman, Naaman is is offended at this, right? Naaman is shocked. He says, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not all the rivers in Damascus better than the Jordan? Could I not wash in those and be clean? Like he's expecting Elisha to come out and put on this big ceremony and to like, you know, invoke the name of the Lord in Hebrew and like wave his hands around and, just do this big, this big thing. In other words, Naaman is saying, doesn't Elisha know how important I am? Doesn't he know how big of a deal I am? Doesn't he know that if he helps me, he will never want anything ever again? Think about this. Regardless of how you feel about any president or vice president that has ever lived, I don't I could not care less what you think about them as individuals. But Imagine that the Vice President, Kamala Harris, walked in the door right now, and she bore with her the full authority and all the wealth of the United States Treasury and said, if you will help me with this one thing, everything that I have with me right now is yours. All the wealth in this nation, everything, it's all yours. And on top of that, I will owe you an unlimited amount of political favors. First thing, we would all, like our jaws would drop on on the floor because the vice president was in here talking to us. Like, again, don't care what you think about any individual one. That's a cool position. It's a big deal. But the second thing is as soon as she asked us to help, we would drop everything to do it because that's a pretty sweet deal. And and Elisha's just like, yeah, just, just send the servant. It's fine. But think about it. Elisha sends the servant and says, all you have to do is go and wash in this river. But if Elisha himself had come out and waved his arms around and done the big ceremony and said, okay, if you want to be healed, here the, here, here's the 10 steps, right? Like go climb this mountain and fight the mythical creature and save the princess and come back with a lock of her hair. And if you come back with a lock of her hair and you cook me a meal, like what, if, he, if he gave him this list, Naomi would be like, all right, let's do it. Like, I got all of this. I'm going to do all of it. And Naaman was the guy that probably could accomplish it. Right? Because what does that tell us about the way that we expect this to work? That we can somehow prove that we are sufficient to be healed. That we are somehow deserving. That it is an affirmation of our inherent strength or our goodness or our self-worth or our righteousness or whatever to be given a task and to accomplish it. But Elisha is saying, no, the way to restoration is not through your greatness. It is not through your power. It is not through your wealth. The way to restoration is through your weakness. And it is admitting that you have nothing and you do not have the answers. And so I want you to think about this, that maybe the realization that you have the nagging feeling that you're inadequate that may actually be good for you that may actually be god's grace to you to see that you are not enough because self-sufficiency is the antithesis of healthy relationships self-sufficiency thinking you can do it on your own by yourself is a real easy way, maybe the best way, to throw up walls between you and every other meaningful relationship that you might have. See, Naaman couldn't get healthy until he came to the full understanding that it was only through the help of someone else and his complete and total dependence on it that was going to heal him. So where is your self-sufficiency keeping you from seeing that in your own life? Where is your pride keeping you from admitting that you need help? Who are the people around you that can tell you that? Right, Even Naaman, this most, most, second most powerful man in the world, had, had servants who were like, hey, that prophet did not ask you to do too much. Just go get in the river. Just see what happens. And, and y'all, I have so many conversations with y'all like every day and that all you need to do is just to go and tell somebody else Go and tell your roommate. Go and tell your friends on campus. Go and tell the people that live with you all day, every day. Because like we can talk about it, and I want to talk about it, and I invite you to talk about it every week. But when you're in your dorm room and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to go and do something stupid. I can't help you. (laughs) I have nothing for you in that moment. But the people you live with Do. The people you live with are the ones that can say, hey, you're acting really weird right now. What's going on? They can say, hey, you were over at your friend's house for a really long time last night. What's going on there? You have people around you that can see that and can speak to that, and you won't do it. And I think it's because of your self-sufficiency. I think it's because of your pride. Because, Because I'm the perfect one to help everybody else. Right, I'm the one that everybody comes to for wisdom and advice. And so if I admit that I'm not good enough, then all of a sudden somehow all that is invalidated. Or if people knew the real me, they would never truly love me or listen to me. But then all they do is love a version of you that doesn't exist. And it all sounds so humble, but it's just pride. It's just self-sufficiency. Because look, the promise of this life, the promise of the world that we live in that is ruined by sin is that everything is going to fall apart. I do have a movie reference and it's one of my favorites. Jurassic Park, right? One of the greatest movies of all time. I will die on that hill. But what happened? What's the plot of Jurassic Park, right? That that, uh, Dr. John Hammond figures out how to how to extract dino DNA from a mosquito that's been preserved in amber, and he what? Dinosaurs. Yep, dinosaurs. Right. And he and he and he takes the DNA and he puts it in these lizards, and all of a sudden they're able to create dinosaurs, right? And and, and so they open this theme park and they bring in uh, they bring in these scientists and and the the true star of the movie. Jeff Goldblum, Jeffy G, Dr. Ian Malcolm. And his whole thing, his whole thing in the movie is chaos theory, right? That that if something can go wrong, it's going to. And it's going to go horribly wrong. And it's unpredictable, right? And so so what was the safeguard that they put in against the dinosaurs uh, uh, recreating? Samuel Jackson, Jackson. (laughs) right? No, they, they, they made them all females. And so what happens when they're going through and they find dinosaur eggs on the island what, what what do they say life finds a way right the world is out of our control there are things that we cannot explain and dr malcolm's chaos theory is that no matter what everything is going to fall apart and that's the world we live in look physically somewhere around age 25 your body stops growing and it starts dying Right. So fun, right? That's why it takes me almost a full week to recover from an intramural basketball game <laughs> at 36 when at 22 I could play like 5 games in a row like even in way worse shape. Look, something is going to happen to you that's going to make everything feel like it's falling apart. You might get hurt, you might get sick. You might even get chronically or terminally sick. And and what was the what was the biggest thing that we wrestled with through the whole pandemic? We are not in control whatever's going on, whatever you think the angle is, you were not the one who was in control. And I wonder if you can admit that. I wonder if you can come to terms with that. But again, relationally, we see the way that plays out in our relationships, that one of the realities of living in a fallen world is that your relationships are going to be places of great tension. I said this week one, I might have said it week two, C.S. Lewis said the only place that we're going to be free from the threat of relational pain is either heaven or hell. As long as we're in this world, there are going to be places of tension. Because we know this to be true, few things are going to have the ability to lift you up like a friend with an encouraging word. Like a parent saying, I'm proud of you, I love you. Like a, like a boyfriend or girlfriend or eventually husband or wife saying, you are beautiful to me. Nothing builds us up like that. But on the flip side, nothing hurts worse than betrayal from those places. Nothing does. And the truth is, because we're all sinners, our friends, our parents, our mentors, our pastors, everybody. Everybody is going to fail us and we are going to fail everybody else at some point. And it hurts. And it leads to a couple different paths. One looks like doing whatever you possibly can. Being whoever you have to be to keep that relationship. To to blend in with whatever group you want to belong to or do this or that to keep the, the dating relationship. And the other looks like just using people to get what you need. Hey, I'm going to get hurt anyway. So let me just get what I can out of these people. And when it ends, it ends. Who cares? But both of those stem from the same lie of self-sufficiency, that you can either give enough effort and work to get what you want, or you can completely control the terms of your relationships to ensure that you will never, under any circumstance, struggle with hurt or disappointment. So it's our pride and our self-sufficiency to think that leads us to think that we can figure out enough technology or come up with enough coping mechanisms to get us through it, Or that there's something outside of us that's the problem, that it's not really in here. Or or the illusion that we bring anything at all to the table. The only thing that you contribute to your restoration, to your salvation, is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. That's all you bring to the table. And even if you understand this longing... For restoration, until you understand that your sin, your pride, your self sufficiency is the thing keeping you from it, you're never going to grasp it. But here's what it comes down to Naaman swallows his pride and he dips in the river, and the Bible says that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And so maybe tonight you're here and you feel trapped. You feel trapped like Naaman did. And you're here to hopefully find the 10 easy steps to fix all your relationships. And if I did that, if I gave you the 10 steps to a Christian friendship or 10 steps to Christian dating or whatever, like y'all would write them down and you would try to follow them to a T. Not because you trust me, not because you believe what I'm saying is true, but because that's just how we work. Like, give me the 10 steps. Well, and, and today, I was, as I was looking at this, I was curious um, what the, what the the best-selling books, nonfiction books on Amazon where, and the first one, the number one book, which has been on the list for 157 weeks, is called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Here's how you get better, right? Another book on the list uh, has been on the list for 161 weeks. It is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... Why? Why? Here's how we cope with the world. Here are the things that we do. Some of the other ones, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dave Ramsey's Baby Steps Millionaires. Look, it's, it's not to say that any of that is bad. But what does it reflect about us that we're always looking for the next best thing, the next book to tell us, here's how you fix it. The gaping holes in your life, here's how you fix them. But what I think the gospel tells us, what I think the story of Naaman tells us, what I think is the story of the whole Bible, what it tells us is that what if the way forward isn't improving ourselves? What if the way forward is admitting that we're helpless to truly do so? What if instead of achieving great feats or morally perfecting ourselves, the way forward is grabbing a friend and admitting that it's our pride that's killing us, And begin the process of restoration that way. So the last thing we're looking at is the life of restoration. How do we get it? How do we do this? Look back to verses 1 through 3. How does Naaman even find out about Elisha? His slave girl tells him. But think about what that entails, right? Verse 2 tells us that during one of their raids, the Syrians brought her back. And she was sent to live in the house of Naaman's wife. Probably what happened is the Syrians go on a raid, they kill this girl's family, and they bring her back with them. They destroy her hometown, everything she knows and loves, and they bring her back. And if you think about that, a logical response would have been, you know what? Naaman, good. I'm glad you have leprosy. I hope your arms and legs fall off and you rot in hell forever. Right? Like, let's be honest. Like that would, that, that's a response that we all would look at and say, yeah, I get that. But yet, here she is saying, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. How does she say that? Like, how in the world can somebody who's been through that say that? And I think it's because she had known, the first, she had known firsthand the goodness of God and the beauty of a restored life with him. And because she understood that, even if she didn't necessarily Love Naaman and love her present situation, she could still see him for what he was a sick and suffering man who longed and desperately needed restoration. And y'all, this is so beautiful because it points us to another suffering servant. This little slave girl in 2 Kings 5 points us to Jesus Christ because we see in Christ one who left his home, who was seated at the right hand of the Father to come to a foreign land to serve those who hated him. And the only way to forgive is to suffer. Forgiveness says that I would rather pay the price than to see you suffer this wrong. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. That she points us to Christ because she lost her family, her homeland, and she suffers. And that Jesus left the comfort of heaven as the eternal member of of the Trinity of the Son himself to come and to live on this earth and to do the things that we are called to do, that he came to live and die for us and rise again so that we can experience this peace with God and man. But look at how it changes his name. And the first thing he does is he goes from trying to buy Elisha's affection to up- buy his restoration. In verse 15, his desire shifts from that to wanting to give generously. That now restoration has become not about what we can get out of relationships, what we can give. We talked a few weeks ago about how we're created to reflect a God who has for all eternity existed in relationship in Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a mutually self-giving, loving relationship. But we realize that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to give himself for us and the Spirit gives us new hearts. We can live in those same mutually self-giving relationships relationships, that we can love the way that God loved us. And at that point, people stop being tools, uh, for our, tools or obstacles to our happiness, and they become people to be loved and served and cared for. And we become people who can admit our longing, our need to be loved and served and cared for. But then the other thing he does is he takes two mule loads of dirt from Israel back home with him. There's a lot there to that, but, but, but what he's doing is he's taking a piece of Israel back with him because as he goes back to his pagan nation, he's integrating his faith with his job. Talk about that more later, but it simply means that as we've experienced the restored life, we won't and we can't live it on our own. We take it with us and it informs our work and our relationships. And this is what each and every one of us is called to do. So I'm gonna close with this. Um, before he was Iron Man, before he was Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. was a bit of a train wreck. Uh, from 1996 to 2001, uh, he had a string of drug arrests uh, and addictions that basically made him unhirable in Hollywood. Um, he, he just he couldn't get, he couldn't get work. He was in and out of jail, in and out of rehab, all this kind of stuff. And so he gets out. He gets out. He's struggling to get clean. Maybe he's gotten clean and. And, and, but but he, can't, he can't get hired anywhere because apparently there's like some kind of insurance you have to get on an actor. So if they go to jail, like whatever, and he couldn't get it. So in 2003, Mel Gibson hired him for a movie, even though he couldn't be insured. And a few years later, uh, Mel Gibson uh, himself got into a bit of trouble, um, a lot of trouble for saying and doing some, some pretty terrible things. Um, but in 2011, Robert Downey Jr. won an award and he asked Mel Gibson to present it to him. And I was like, why, why did you do this? Like he's, Mel Gibson's a terrible person. Like if it happened now, it, he would be canceled, right? Like what, like cancel culture. I feel like I'm a middle-aged white pastor. I have to complain about cancel culture. Um, <laughs> but when they asked Robert Downey Jr. why he did this, he said, Robert Downey Jr. said this. He said, I asked Mel to present this award for me for a reason. When I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope and encouraged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. He kept a roof over my head and food on the table and he said if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoing and embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus as he calls it, he said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man. What Robert Downey Jr. was saying is that because Mel Gibson reached out to me in kindness and in grace, it led to my restoration. And because I've experienced that firsthand, I can do the same thing for him. Look, the path to restoration is admitting your weakness and coming to Jesus who asks nothing of you but to trust that he loves you, that he restores you and he frees you for the beautiful community and relationships that you were designed for. You were created for restoration. Will you come and find it? Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you again um, for your word. Lord, we thank you for this uh, beautiful picture in 2 Kings of the story of Naaman, uh, this man who desperately needed healing and thought he could earn it and thought he could get it for himself. But Lord, thank you that in your word, you show us that he couldn't. And by extension, we can't. That no goodness we bring, no wealth we bring, no success that we bring to the table will contribute anything to the restoration that we so long for. But we thank you that you came to seek us out, to restore us, to live for us, to die for us, that we might be reconnected and restored to you. So, Father, as we go forward, for those of us tonight that Know that, that simply needs to be reminded, Lord, would it be something that we remember? And Lord, for those of us tonight who may be here that don't believe this, that we don't know it, Lord, would tonight be the night that we begin to admit our struggles, that we begin to admit our insufficiency, our inadequacy, and that you would meet us in that. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.